Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com or also on BitChute and YouTube at Speaking Podcast. I also have the Awakening Podcast, the Learn Polish Podcast, and the Meditation Podcast, and all can be found on freedombroadcasters.com. Today, my guest, fellow Toastmaster, please welcome Brian Ahern. Thank you for having me, Roy. I'm excited to talk to you about speaking. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this because uh, you know it is, uh, I've I've looked at your your uh, website and it's impressive all the different things that you're doing. So I suppose what I'd like to maybe introduce yourself first to the audience. Sure. So I'm Brian Ahern, and I have a company called Influence People. And uh, I left the corporate world a couple of years ago to do this full time, but I started it about a dozen years ago. I knew it's what I would want to do full time whenever I decided it was time to step away from the corporate role for the insurance company that I worked with. And uh, I love it. And I'm very thankful that going all the way back into the early 90s, when I had started at that insurance company, they had their own Toastmasters group. And I got involved with that. And I had been doing a little bit of speaking and training in, in another role with a different insurance company. But boy, I was thankful that they had that Toastmasters group because it really helped in terms of my public persona, my speaking skills. And, and even decades later, I would have some people who would say, you spoke for an hour and you never said, um, ah, or, er, were you in Toastmasters? And I said, absolutely. They beat it out of me. Yeah. I don't know. Did you ever record your speeches, but listening to the first ones to after like all these pause fillers. Yeah. It, it definitely helps. It does. It does. And the, the, table topics, to think on your feet, teaching people sales, it's objections, you've got to be able to think on your feet. And that was incredibly helpful too. So I, I think it's a wonderful organization. I always encourage people to get involved with it. Totally, totally agree with you. So I always like to know your speaking journey from like school age to, you know, where were you shy? Were you kind of outgoing? I was never shy. I don't ever remember having a fear of getting up in front of people. When I started in the insurance business right out of college, and that goes way back, 1986, I got involved with a little bit of training when I was with the travelers insurance companies. And I found that I liked it. I had no problem standing in front of a group of people and talking about the products and services. And then when I moved over to the next insurance company, because I enjoyed that aspect of it, I got involved with training. I wasn't in the training department, but I volunteered to do training for agents. So it would be just a few dozen people maybe getting together and teaching them about the products and services. In no way would I have said I was a good speaker because I hadn't learned the things that Toastmasters was going to teach me and all the things that I've learned since then. But I was not afraid to be in front of the group as long as I felt comfortable in what I was talking about. Okay. And I see, uh, because I used to Kung Fu for years and, you know, teaching classes as well, because the instructor would allow us to teach class. I see your second, uh, second Dan uh, in Taekwondo. I am. I got involved with my daughter when she was about eight years old. We signed her up for her birthday and she really had an aptitude for it. And like so many kids, they can get halfway through that and just peter out because it is so repetitious and they don't always understand the reason for the repetition. So I had promised her, I said, if you get halfway to your black belt, I'll join and do this with you. So she got really excited. She got halfway. I joined. 
And like anything I do, I pour myself into it. So I started going all the time with her and then sometimes by myself. We tested for our black belts together, which was awesome. Oh, beautiful. I've always, yeah, always told people, it's one thing to watch your children and be proud, but it's another thing to be in there and actually do it with them. And we continued to do it. She didn't want to test for her second degree, but I went on. I felt like getting my black belt was good, but not a lot of people go past that. And I wanted to just see how far I could push myself given my constraints of work and time and and I loved it brilliant and I, I don't think people realize that you know because sometimes there's a lot of people they're shy and they're afraid of speaking in public but it kind of helps you get out of your shell as well being in martial arts because one is when you're doing the chi the screaming and everything because you, you you don't fear doing that you know a lot of times you'd be paranoid maybe at the start right. but then when everyone's doing it you get over that fear yes and I think it was helpful for my daughter too because there were times where she was called up front and was going to lead the stretches. So she had to be the center of attention. And she never really liked that very much, but she got comfortable with it. And she's very verbal. She would not want to stand in front of groups like I do and teach, but she is very verbal in terms of her interaction with people. It's fun just to sit back and watch her communicate with people. Brilliant. And like one of the books that uh, that I really enjoyed here is I don't even remember how long ago was uh, Robert Caldini and you're a member does like is it 20 people or has that changed since but there's very little in the, the the training that you've done under that. Yes, there's 20 people in the world who are certified by Robert Cialdini to teach his methodology of influence and persuasion. I'm fortunate to be one of those people. They purposely keep that group tight. They practice what they preach, principle of scarcity. When there's fewer, people want us more. So I've been associated with him now for a little over a dozen years, and it's been wonderful. He is the godfather of influence and persuasion. He is the rock star in his field. And most of the time when people find that I have an association with him, that's a huge credibility factor for me, which, you know, when we talk about speaking, being credible before you open your mouth is a huge part of people's willingness to listen to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, what's the difference between that and the other ones that are there? Because I mean, there's loads of different institutes. I mean, like the fear that I have with some people is they're getting coached by somebody that has been certified on the internet for 20 euro, just, you know, and then obviously, if that is a scarcity of 20 people, the caliber is, you know, through the stratosphere, basically. Yes, they're, they're really selective. You go through an application process, you have to show that you've got a potential market uh, for me, I, I was and still am the only person in the insurance industry. And so I take what, what he teaches and morph it a little bit so that it's very specific for insurance and particularly insurance agents. But there's a rigorous process you go through in terms of application. So you would go through their workshop. And then if you thought that this is something you'd like to pursue, you begin your communication, you go through the application process. They typically only choose two or three people a year to potentially put through their training. And that training then would be going to Arizona and spending a week with Dr. Cialdini himself and his partner, Dr. Gregory Neidert, learning the under the hood about the workshop, why they do what they do, why they present things the way they do. Then you have to teach back to them, which is intimidating to teach influence back to the guy who wrote the book that some five or six million people have, have read. Once you get through that process, though, you're still not even finished because you still have to schedule your first workshop and and then you're audited. And there have been people who did not do well on that workshop and did not end up getting certified. So they're very 
rigorous about the process. And what I will say about Dr. Cialdini is he loves research and he is passionate about how that research is shared with people. He wants to make sure that it's shared correctly. There's so much that gets shared that's bastardized in all kinds of ab or, uh, venues where people read something and then it changes and it changes and it changes. And so he's very particular about how we talk about the research. And he could probably certify a lot more people if he wanted to, but he is more concerned with, I think, his legacy and his work and how that's presented. And it's been an awesome experience to get to know him because I've got to spend a lot of time with him on a personal level. And for people who, who don't know who he is, it's just hard to describe. He, he is one of the preeminent people in the world in, in his field. Oh, very good. Very good. And uh, yeah, like, would love to be a fly on the wall for that training episode. Because, yeah, that, that's, uh, I'm sure it was incredible. When you're, when you're preparing a speech, how are you doing it? Practice, 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 more practice. I, I learned a lot many years ago, two books that are really totally changed how I present. The first was The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs by Carmine Gallo. And as I read that book and I thought about Steve Jobs, or I'd go to the internet and I would look at how he was interacting with audiences, it just made so much sense. And, and he, although he always came across as the super relaxed, you know, just having a conversation, he was meticulous about every aspect of what he was doing in his messaging. And I remember, I think I took like seven pages of typed notes as I went through that book and I was putting in what I was going to change and what I needed to do based on what I was learning. And the second book that really impacted me was Presentation Zen. And I don't remember the author's name, but it looked at slide preparation. And, and I'd look at a slide in the book. I'm like, well, that's pretty good. And then I'd look at their suggestion. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. That's really good. So I went back and I blew up slide decks. I, uh, for example, for the workshop I led for Robert Cialdini, I had some 250 slides. I redid every single one of them based on the things that I was learning. And the response was overwhelming, Roy. I mean, people were just, they'd come up and they would say, wow, man, your slides are so vibrant, the visuals or how I was engaging with the groups. So once I learned that and started to implement it, then it just became a matter of practice. And I was supposed to do a, a TED talk last year. I bet I practiced that talk no less than 250 times. And then the week before it got canceled. I'm like, oh, ouch. <laughs> and as disappointing as that was, Roy, I thought, you know what, there's a lot of people right now with the pandemic who have it so much worse. This was just a talk. It would have been wonderful. It would have been great for marketing, but I'll get my chance someday. But what I realized is all that preparation, it's still helping me because I'm going to make a proposal next week to a large insurance organization. And the foundation of it will be most of what I was preparing for that talk. And then I'll morph that into the specifics of what they need. So practice never goes unused. It always comes back in some way, shape or form to help you. Brilliant. What I love about that, Brian, is some people, when they want to get into speaking, they might join the Toastmasters, but they'll turn up for the Toastmasters once a week, maybe one, twice a month. Like, I was late, to be honest. I was very sure, even though with the martial arts, that wasn't a problem, but speaking in public for me was hard, and it was four years ago I joined the Toastmasters. 
but I really wanted to embrace it. I was buying books. I was watching the TEDx speeches. I was doing Udemy courses. I was watching comedy speeches because I wanted to go into the humor speech. You're just constantly, and people, I think people need to realize, I mean, you're doing that. You were doing that. You're practicing. You don't just go once a week and do uh, practice your, you know, go be a Toastmaster or do a seven minute speech. Yeah, I found too something that really was helpful when I would get ready for a really big speech. Maybe I was going to go give a one hour keynote. My routine, I have a really nice gym in my basement. I have a treadmill and I'd get on the treadmill every morning for no less than 30 minutes, sometimes up to an hour. And I would give my speech. I'd have my iPad right there so I could see the PowerPoint and I would flip through and I would literally give that speech while I was running. Now I wasn't running fast, but but I thought if I can run and control my breathing and give this speech, well, then standing in front of the group is going to be easy. And, and the sheer repetition of, you know, with that, no less than 30 times, working on that was so helpful. And, and I just, I try to view it like a comedian who would go to a comedy club and work new jokes and see what the response is. And, keep, you know, they keep doing all this before they do their HBO special that's how I try to approach my speaking. Just keep working on the little things that somebody might not be able to put their finger on, but they'll still say, wow, that was really, really great. And I don't know, when you were in Toastmasters, did you enter competitions for the speaking or the table topics or the humor speech? I never got in any of the competitions. So I was in Toastmasters in the early 90s for about three years. And then in my corporate role, I was doing a lot of travel and training. So I stepped away from it. And then I went back for a brief period not to pursue the next level. I got my um, CTM, but I didn't go anything past that. I was getting so much speaking in what I was doing. I just wanted a place that I could go and try some new things and get feedback from people who are very focused on speaking now what I do when I go and I give a presentation, especially if I'm local, I'll invite a lot of people I really know and respect and people who've seen me over the years. And I'll tell them, I want you to look very specifically and give me feedback on the slides because this is what I'm trying to accomplish. Or I'm going to open with a story that I've never shared before. Give me feedback. Is the story tight? Does it convey everything? Do I need to add something or take something away? But then I would you know, get these six or eight trusted advisors who would give me very detailed feedback that I could then work into how I was going to start changing it. And I really feel like, Roy, that I, I, whatever I talk about, it's never exactly the same. There's always something that I'm tweaking and changing so that I, I want to feel like when I give a speech or do a presentation, I want to leave there and go, wow, that was the best that I've ever done. But it's not as good as I'm going to be next time I do it because I'll figure out something else to change to make it better. Yeah, no, I love that. And when when I was doing competitions, and what I find strange is I've often been a judge as well, and I'd participate. Very few would ask me for feedback, but every time I went in, I would write to everybody that was in the room, especially the kind of experienced people, and I say, "Please rip it apart. Give me, you know, you're not hurting my ego." And each time when you get into the next level, people are saying, whoa, you've raised the bar, you've raised the bar. And, you know, if you look at it from, say, the first club to when you get into, say, district, it's unbelievable the difference that you can evolve from. And, like, I got a bit cocky then at one stage. So, like, I I can do a speech off the cuff. And I was called out on it one day. 
few of the members in the club, they said, look, we see you've got you've got a great message and everything, but you know you're just winging it. You know, you're just talking away. And they said, we've seen you do very good speeches. Try to do the next one like it's a competition one. And, you know, I took them on board and I really practiced and the difference was incredible. You know, because sometimes we get a bit complacent. I think you constantly need to get the feedback to be making it better for the next next performance. Absolutely. And and I enjoy also when I go to an event or if I watch something, I want to learn from the speaker, whatever it is that he or she is sharing. But I also want to see how they're engaging with the audience. And can I take away something that, that I might be able to utilize that will make me better? And I find that kind of having a foot in both camps, you know, learn what the material is, but learn from what they're doing, good or bad really helps with that personal development. I had a guest on recently and they were saying, and like, I've never done it like that because I'd normally just make notes at whatever event I'm at. But they said they always have on one side about the speaker, what is good and what's bad. And then the notes on the, what they're actually delivering on the other side. And I thought, okay, that's great. Because then you can go through all the different speakers and pick up on the points for that. And we can even learn from people who aren't speakers. I Right now I'm thinking about an, event that my wife and I went to, it was probably a couple of years ago, small little tavern and a pretty well-known musician came, well, well-known in his field. I, I wasn't a, a big like country fan, but we went and we watched this individual and he had a way of creating an intimacy in the room. He wasn't just playing, but, but there was an intimacy that was almost like, this guy loves what he's doing and he's letting you in on it. And I would think about that. I'm like, how can I do that? How can I, how can I come across in a way that people go like, I can tell you love what you do. And thank you for letting me in on that. Thank you for sharing that with me. So it's not a speaking, but there was a presence and he's on stage and we're on stage when we're speaking. What can we take from those people, even though it's very different and work that in so that we create a better experience for the audience? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, love that. So I know that um are you doing online stuff now with the the craziness going on in the world with your training? I am, and I actually just put a studio in the house. And I would have I would have done this interview from the studio, but it's upstairs and it's next to the bedrooms and it's early, so people are sleeping upstairs. But I, I saw a speaker who had done something like that, and I thought, wow, that is really cool. He had big screen TV, nice backdrop. He's interacting from the waist up. It wasn't just what we are getting used to in Zoom, which is pretty much like shoulders up. So I hired a firm to do a keynote speech and the, and the organization loved it. But unfortunately, the firm went under because of COVID. They were a meeting place and nine months of no meetings. They just couldn't make it work. So my wife gave me the green light and we put a studio in uh, the bedroom upstairs where our daughter used to be. And it's been great. When I do... For example, if I do a prospecting call, I'll be in the studio and you'll see your name and say, hi, Roy, and it's going to have your logo and it has my logo. And every time I do that, people are like, wow, that is cool. And then it's my platform to say, I put a studio in, let me show you a couple slides and I click through and they can see how vibrant it looks, but it's pretty much me from the waist up and I'm moving in towards the camera and I'm turning to the screen and I'm doing all of that. The first organization that I did it with, they loved it. I mean, the, the man 
who hired me came back and said, I'm seeing comments like you're one of the, you're the best speaker that we've ever had at this company. And that was in a virtual world. So I'm like, man, I've hit gold here with this. Brilliant. Brilliant. And have you any of them videos up on the YouTube channel or? I, I put a series of videos out this week because my second book came out uh, late last week. And then I put a series. So I had one video each day. So if you go out to my LinkedIn site and look at my activity, you'll see a number of different videos and they were all shot in the, in the room upstairs. And you see this 55 inch screen right to my right. And you can see the, the colors. And I talk about, you know, one aspect of the book. So each one's about 90 seconds. So I plan to do a lot more of those. What I'm working on right now is just getting used to the space. I used to do some improv comedy, my wife and I did, and that's a big thing is understanding your space. So even though it's somewhat limited, knowing how you can move freely in that space, and I want to work on that. And then I may consider doing some online courses. I've already got a number with LinkedIn, but there's a, there's a lot of possibilities when you put something like that into your home because I can use it 24-7. Yeah, and as you mentioned that, because I, I have seen the video of the new book, it does, it looks very professional. So I'll make sure that I'll include that on, on the links of the podcast so people actually can go in and, uh, Thank you. And, and, and look at it. I see as well that you've done keynotes. So I know that some people want to do keynotes. I know when, let's say when this craziness ends, um, that how you can get about it and organize yourself. What, what way do you go about doing a keynote? I love keynotes. If I could do just one thing, that's what it would be. Really? Because I, I really enjoy the opportunity to engage an audience and depending on how much time you have, 40 to 90 minutes stops, you get paid really well for them. Sometimes you get paid as well as you would for a whole day of training. But it's more of a performance, I think, than training is. And, and I really enjoy what I share with people is usually new to them. They've heard the words influence and persuasion, but they've never been exposed to all the research. And when I start sharing that research and they clearly see like, wow, this can make a huge difference, then they're bought in. And the fact that I can talk about, hey, what you're gonna learn today, not only will it help you at the office, it's gonna help you at home. It might help you get your kid to empty the dishwasher or cut the grass. I have 100% buy-in at that point because there's always people who are there because they have to be but if they think they could get their kid or their spouse to do something, they're totally bought in. So part of when I left the insurance company, my vision for what I do, I want to travel the world and have an opportunity to share this research. My, I'm not a social psychologist, but I'm really good with the business application. And so I want to work with organizations. And it's always fun when you can go somewhere to a nice hotel in a nice city and do a keynote and bring my wife along and we extend on the front or the back end and have a little mini vacation. So that's kind of a, a vision for what I want to happen with my business. But getting keynotes is not easy. Um, the people who, who book those events, they're inundated with speakers. And, and my wife works with me. She does a tremendous amount of outreach for me. We're always trying new and different things, whether it's the videos or sending people books. It's, it's not easy by any means, but I feel like it's like the snowball going downhill that once you get a little notoriety, somebody else says, Hey, I saw you at that event. And you start that conversation, you know, you're not having to reach them. They're reaching you. So I'm in year, I'm just starting year three of the business and things are definitely picking up. And I really believe that the studio is going to make a, a big difference because except for the other speaker I saw, I, I've not seen anybody else 
who's doing what I'm doing from a studio like that. And if you don't mind me, is it, does it cost much to set up something like that? Not really. I had to buy a backdrop. The green screen feature wasn't working very well. And sometimes you look like a weatherman or it's just. Yeah, so, I, this one here, no, it's on the green screen. And even though it's my own books, but sometimes it starts flickering. And I don't know why I don't change anything. Sometimes it's perfect. And other times it'll start flickering and it, it's a distraction. Well, yours looks great. I, I really thought it was your actual bookshelf. So kudos. <laughs> But when I set up the green screen and I tried to start utilizing some of the backgrounds and things, it just wasn't working well. And then you've got to consider I've got a big screen TV next to me. And if the colors aren't right, then the green screen would show on on some of the coloring, like a green or something like that. So I thought, I'm just going to scrap that. And I bought backdrops. So I've got one that looks like it's brick and I've got some other ones. And I there's just this huge apparatus that's up against the wall and I can change that out. So it's like a pull down kind of thing, is it? It's it's literally like two posts and then it goes across and I clip them. There's these little clips and I just, it's like a 12 by eight canvas and it's brick background or an office background. And I just hang that up, which the nice thing is then it gives me different venues, so to speak, when I'm working with a client. The next time I work with the insurance client that I talked to last week, I can have a different background. So that's working really well. We, I took a 55 inch TV that we had in our family room and I brought it upstairs and we just got a new TV for the family room. Had to buy a stand to put it on because it couldn't mount it to the wall. Box lighting, I'm using a, I'm pointing to right now, a 2K Logitech webcam that just sits on top of the laptop. So then I bought a, a stand. And it's and very good it. quality. Like I'd encourage people to, in case they're just listening to the audio, the, like, you know, the quality is very good there. And, and then you start playing with things. There's a program that I got called webcam settings, I think. And I could adjust some of the features, the hue, the brightness. So you start playing around like in, in the studio, I keep the lighting the same. So I play around with all of that to get it just right. So it looks really, really good had to buy a standing desk so I could set that on it. And then it's backed up a little bit. Then there were other little gadgets probably here and there. But I, I would say somebody could probably get away because the price of TVs has come down. You could probably get away all told for $1,000 to set that up. And you land one speaking or training opportunity. You've paid for it and everything else is icing on the cake. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's excellent uh, to know. And like with the power of influence and the coaching of that, like a lot of people, like say, maybe not just the keynote, but they want to get into the speaking. And what's the best way of approaching people? Because everyone wants to, you know, get paid or even just get started. I, I believe just from listening to some people, you know, just do it free and get out there. But when you do want to get paid, what, what's your advice for, for getting started on that? Don't do things for free. That's the first thing. <laughs> because everybody uh, everybody will say, well, we don't have a budget, but you're going to get in front of people who can hire you. And, and I did that for a little bit right off the bat. And very seldom, very seldom does it work out because those people who are going to that event, if that event can't afford to pay you, it's probably not a very high level event. And those people aren't paying much, or maybe they're all going for free. So it just devalues. But if they knew like, wow, they're paying the speaker a lot of money, then they automatically add value 
to what it is that, that you're going to say. So you have to very quickly move away from doing those freebies unless there's a very specific reason. So for example, it was about a year and a half ago and I started talking about a new subject. So a friend runs an organization here in Columbus, Ohio. I told him I'd be happy to come speak. That was my practice. I invited lots of people that I knew. I got feedback. So that was everybody won in a situation like that. But beyond that, you do need to start to set your price and you start to recognize there are going to just be some organizations or individuals who won't be able to afford you. And that doesn't make them, it doesn't make you bad for saying, I'm sorry, but I'm just not going to do it for that because there's other organizations now that are paying me X amount. And it's not fair to them that I would go speak for your organization for free. They find out and then they're like, Hey, you know, why'd you charge us that amount of money? So you have to get firm and the, you will probably start at a lower price. Everybody does because nobody's going to want to spend a ton of money on something that's unproven. And it does take time. And then you've got to start creating your content. You've got to get videos out there. So I have videos on my website. I've done work with LinkedIn. People can see me teaching to the camera. I post a lot of information. So you've got to create this presence where people start to recognize that you're somebody in your field that's worth listening to. And then you've got to really start marketing yourself. And that part, I will say, is harder than I thought it would be. But I'm very fortunate that the discipline that I've learned through Taekwondo and other things, it is not hard for me to be up every day at the same time and then grind it out, you know, six and seven days a week. And I'm very meticulous in terms of how I follow up. And it starts paying dividends. You start getting those opportunities. You crush it. They start talking and more people start reaching out. So it's it's not easy, but it's so worth it. Do you, um, do you get video testimonials to use as promotional material then to kind of put up? I, I have some that are up there. If people would go out to my website, they'll see there's a testimonial page and big video right there at the top. And then there's also a lot of written testimonials. And I make sure that I have the person's picture their name, the organization, their title, because when somebody sees executive vice president, that adds weight yeah. to what their words are. It's interesting about the testimonials. When I did a talk many years ago, and I was so focused on the talk, and I had hired somebody to come in and video, a friend was standing in the back of the room, and he asked me, so you're going to get testimonials? I'm like, oh, I didn't even think of it. I'm so focused on what I need to do. Well, fortunately, he had been in media relations, and he said, well, don't worry, I'll, I'll do it for you. I'll, I'll interview the people. And he went and he got the film guys and he brought them into the other room. And I asked a few people and my friend John sat down and almost interviewed them. And then we pulled the clips out and it was awesome. I mean, he just knew what he was doing and how to get people to talk. So that's incredibly important, again, because if somebody's going to pay you a lot of money, they want to know what other people have said. They want to hear those people and see those people. They want to see clips of you either on stage or in the virtual world. So you probably need both of those now, but they want to know what are they going to get for their money? And I want to leave them feeling like, oh my gosh, I would have paid you so much more. That was awesome because then next time I will get more. And would you recommend that? Because I mean, that sounds like a great idea because one, sometimes people are in awe of the speaker and they, they kind of get flustered. Is it better to have somebody else doing it? Because then they're trying to impress you and get it rather than the speaker trying to get the testimonials with the video? Because I've seen both. Like, and I mean, what you just said there sounds like it might work better. I think, I think asking directly 
especially if you have some relationship with that person to be able to go up and say, hey, Roy, you know, you've seen me speak a couple of times. Would you be willing to give a short video testimonial? Other people, if I were to go up and just say, you know, as I walked up and down the aisle, it looked like you were really engaged with what I was sharing. Would you mind giving a short testimonial on, on video? I've never had people say no. The, the hardest part for people is if they haven't done any public speaking, stumbling over their words. But that's where a really good video editor can extract maybe 10 seconds of their one minute rambling. And that 10 seconds might be beautiful and sound so good. So the editing becomes really important. You're still capturing their words. You're just filtering out things that might come across as do they really know what they're talking about or they're stumbling on their words, but they're not professional speakers, they're audience members. Yeah, very good. You've, you've organized workshops as well, yeah? I do. So when an organization says, we've already got our speakers, but we want somebody to come in and do some training, there's a number of workshops that I do. One of them is called the Principles of Persuasion, and that's Robert Cialdini's development. That was the workshop I actually went through, gosh, 16, 17 years ago that really got me excited about doing this. And that dives in very, very deep into the psychology of persuasion, where we look at the science. I mean, we literally spend like an hour on each of these psychological concepts. That's a two-day workshop. We have another one called Moment Maker, which focuses on something called persuasion. What do we do before we even attempt to persuade somebody? How do we, I like to say, set the stage so that it becomes easier for them to say yes to us? That's a one-day workshop. And then I'm rolling out with my new book, which is called Persuasive Selling for Relationship-Driven Insurance Agents. I've got a one-day workshop that's very specific to insurance, and it dovetails around that book. So those are the three things that I'm doing specific to workshops. After that, if somebody comes and says, hey, we have this issue and we want to know, can you do something? I might craft or customize something depending on their needs. Could be anywhere from two hours to one day taking the psychology that I understand and applying it specifically to their issues. Oh, very good. So you mentioned uh, the book. I mean, you have two books, is it? that? Uh, yes. The first it? book was Influence People with the subtitle Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical. And that's actually the word people. People is that acronym, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical. And that book is more of, a, I would say, a psychology book in that it introduces the principles of persuasion, then it looks, and, and a few other bits of psychology, and then it looks at them in business settings, case studies, things that I actually used during my time in corporate America, uh, social media. So it looks at a variety of ways to use that. The second book is obviously very geared towards selling. So even if somebody's not an insurance agent, if they're in sales, they would benefit from the book because it just takes you through the sales process. And it says, if you're prospecting, what's the best psychology to use? Your first meeting, objection handling, et cetera. And I'm actually working on a third book, which will be really different than those. Uh, the third book, tentatively, I'm titling it The Influencer Keys to Success and Happiness. And it again, it teaches the psychology that I teach, but through a story format. So if you've read books like The Go-Giver, Richest Man in Babylon, uh, books like that that are a story but, but teach uh, foundational principles, this third book is really like that, where it follows the journey of a young man from time he goes off to college and gets into the work world and what he's learning about influence through 
bosses, mentors, coaches, clients. And it's just a fun way to get people engaged who like stories. Very good. And like a lot of people are saying, get the book out because it's definitely better than the business card and everything. Did you notice a big jump once you had your first book out and like, do you actually give it to clients to get in the door? How do you use yes. it from? Yeah. I, I did not write the book to make money on the book. I, I'm fortunate. I've probably broken even and I spent a good bit. I hired a book coach because I self-published and did a number of things like that, but it really is the, the calling card. And you can't see, but over my shoulder, I've probably got two or three dozen envelopes that are already labeled and everything. And, and my books just came yesterday. So I'm going to be signing all these books and then making sure that they're in the envelopes and get them to the post office tomorrow, because that is the calling card for this workshop that I'm doing. So I, I'm not looking to make money on the book. I mean, I do make money every time a book is sold, but it really, if I got one training gig and I've already gotten one. It's pay, it pays for the book multiple, multiple times over. So you really need to think of that book as an expensive business card. But if it's quality and you've got content behind it to support it, that people will say, I want to hire you. That's where you really have an opportunity to move your training, consulting, coaching business forward. Beautiful. And um, finally, um, like I know that with corporate clients you've 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 got because i like you have listed the different types of clients non-insurance and insurance and i think it's brilliant that you've got such a list of insurance would you encourage people to try to kind of stick to one industry and become the specialist in that industry rather than being all over the place yes i i think because i have so much expertise in insurance. I spent over 30 years in the insurance industry and I, I worked in the underwriting and the sales side and the corporate training. I interacted with the agents. I feel like I know insurance inside and out. Any aspect of an insurance company, be it claims, underwriting, selling, leading, coaching, I could take what I teach and, and help an organization in any one of those areas. So that's when you only have limited time, you know, I've only got so much time in a day when I'm going to make phone calls and send emails and develop materials, I should probably play to my strength. But I don't exclude other organizations. In fact, I probably enjoy working more with the non-insurance because I learn so much about businesses that I never would have gotten close to were it not for the fact that they hired me. For example, many years ago, an organization that buys natural gas rights or actually the revenue stream from natural gas hired me to come in and work with their sales individual. I knew nothing about that business. I was fascinated by what I learned. And so that really keeps things fresh for me as far as or comparing at least to insurance where I'm like, well, I know this like the back of my hand. The other organizations become fun. I get hired sometimes because people go look at my website or they look at my LinkedIn profile and they're like, this is really interesting. Could you? And then the conversation starts there. But when I'm looking at who I'm going to prospect toward, I really stay focused on the insurance. And then when other opportunities come, I add them to my database and I will start working those. Brilliant. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. Listen, Brian, it's been fantastic. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So how can people get in contact with you? The easiest way would be LinkedIn or my website. So first I'll say, if you go out to LinkedIn and you reach out to connect with me, I connect with virtually everybody, except for the people who it's very clear all they're trying to do is sell me from the moment 
first moment. If you don't put in, hey, I'm reaching out to you because I heard you on the podcast, I guarantee you, I will send a message back and ask, how did you find me? I like to understand why people are reaching out, but it also keeps social media social. So, you know, Roy, if you had reached out to me and didn't put a reason, you would have got something back and we might have a little banter back and forth and you'll get to know me and I can get to know you. So it, it keeps it social. The second way is my website, which is influencepeople.biz. And if your listeners go out there, there's a dozen years of uh, blogs. I've been blogging every week for a dozen years. There's videos, there's previews to the LinkedIn courses, links to my books and things. So everything except for buying the books is free out on the website. So if somebody wants to learn more, dive into the website. Brilliant. And I'll have all the links on the description of the podcast. Thank you very much, Brian. It's been a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. So that's all for the Speaking Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. As I mentioned, we're on BitChute, we're on YouTube. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, share with your friends. Until next week, take care.